W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Grace M501 with the onboard high-pass filter, a revelation in low-mid-butter. Plus, of course, the trusty Harrison 32 EQ and the RNC 500. Analog Tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the Moon Cabin. To begin, friends, a word, if you please, about my guest on the show today, the one and only Aaron McKeown. Aaron is one of the ever-expanding galaxy of Midnight Disease guests who I first encountered on WFUV, the finest radio station in all the land. WFUV, in fact, becoming sort of a secondary patron saint of this program uh, alongside Mr. Albert Vetch from Wonder Boys. Anyway, Aaron McKeown is a singer-songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, the author of musicals for the stage, and more recently, the scribe and voice behind Aaron McKeown's Facts of Life, one of my favorite Substacks slash podcasts. Aaron actually describes the facts of life as a fusion between the podcast and essay forms. But however one defines it, it's a delight to listen to. It's full of original music and keenly observed experiential writing, much like their music, which again is the way that I first encountered Aaron's artistry. So there I am one day. I'm driving around in my yellow cab, listening to WFUV, as was my want. And this extraordinary cover of the song Paper Moon came on the radio. And this cover comes on, and it's this incredibly dynamic, kinetic, rattling, shaking, jamming, grooving percussion. And then a really, really sick, thick bass line. And then in comes Aaron's voice. It is all in a paper moon, sailing over a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be back, believe if you believed in me. It is only a canvas sky, sailing over a muslin. And it was this instant sensation of the strange and the familiar happening at once. And as I have told you before in these intros, that was my experience of not just living in New York, but of being a cab driver. The sense of uh, finally finding a home in a place that uh, is not a reasonable home for life. (laughs) A place where uh, you have to find purchase in the hailstorm of absurdity. And it's like that's what was happening in this cover. And it just rhymed 
the rhyme with my life was perfect. I almost had to pull my taxi over to think about it and feel it. I became instantly fascinated with Aaron's music and wanted to explore as much of it as I could. The first record that I happened upon was called Hundreds of Lions. And I turned on Hundreds of Lions for the first time. And there's this song called To a Hammer. We be the ones pass on forever because forever would doom us to fail. I will never leave you and you will never know it. To a hammer, everything is a nail. To a hammer, everything is a nail. And To a Hammer has this same hallmark that Aaron's cover of Paper Moon does, which is this very playful, dynamic, surprising rhythm section. And then this very sweet, beautiful, kind of classical melody in Aaron's voice. And Aaron just has this way of singing that is so rooted and sincere and direct. And the lyrics are so true and honest and seem to emanate directly from lived experience. And again, the combination of these factors, this adventurousness anchored by this rooted, direct vocal performance uh, and subject matter in the lyrics, I, I have just found it captivating now for years and years and years. Aaron's music brings me sanctuary in the storm. And... So it was, as you can imagine, very profound for me to get to talk to them on this episode of The Midnight Disease. Now, one last thing, as always, uh, before we jump into the interview, um, there was a moment of turbulence at the outset of our recording session because there had been some sort of power surge or something in Aaron's house, and it had affected a lot of their audio equipment. And so... When we got on the line, Aaron was still adjusting to that shock because audio equipment, as you can imagine, is very important to their work. And I decided to leave our little exchange about that in at the beginning of this interview because, as it turns out, it was thematically related to many of the places that our conversation went. And this intro will now go to that conversation on WALT. Hey. Ooh, that sounds nice. <laughs> don't know what. I I don't know. I <laughs> I basically like swapped out all the cables. One of the things that got fried is the stereo I've had since high school. No, oh God, no. No, no, no. Yeah, and it's so, it's like a double cassette deck, uh, three CD changer, uh, like with preset EQ things on it. And and um, and this, it's it's been, I've lived in this house almost 20 years, mm-hmm. and it's, it's in a spot, and the speakers are in this spot where I know them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like this, my it's my whole world. 
right? Yeah. It's like I've checked every record I've ever made on those speakers in that weird position in the room and like oh. the whole thing. So that so so right before our call, I I learned that 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 got fried, and then that's why I was just like, oh my god! Also, my compressor, also my interface. Wait, what is going on? <laughs> um, oh my god! That is anyway. Heartbreaking. We're all set. Um, yeah. And also, um, I don't think I'm making too big of an assumption to imagine that uh, if this is the music system you've had since high school, it has probably been the receptacle of a lot of life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't believe it still works. I mean, the tape decks haven't worked at the correct speed for years and years. Right, right. So this is like, it's it's literally, it is over 25 years old. You know, because I'm more more than that. I might be almost thirty because I'm forty five. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, oh my god. So anyway, yeah, it has a lot of life in it. Um, but I still I still use it as like a um, you know as an auxiliary like set of speakers. Yeah. It's, you know, comes off of. I think I'm guessing. Well, I know that that got fried because it was plugged straight into the wall. But I don't know about the focus right right now. It seems to be working. So we'll just. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, one of the reasons I uh, completely understand why you would want to take a second to get all your stuff plugged back in is like, I have, you know, I have two microphones in here, one interface and some preamps, like some analog preamps. And if one of these knobs gets turned, <laughs> right. I like can't sleep at night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know. And uh, maybe like a decade ago, I like guest hosted, um, oh gosh, Soundcheck on WNYC. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did, a, I did um, maybe two or three days. I didn't get to pick anything I was covering. It was all, you know, lined up and they were just like, here's, here's what we're covering. Uh, but one of the people that came in was this guy that wrote a book about artists' creative practices. Mm. And it was one of those... Um, books that was full of those anecdotes that we love, which is like Maya Angelou would rent a hotel room and lay on the floor of the hotel room and that's how she would write. Or um, I honestly can't remember who it was, but some French writer needed a glass of red wine at 2 a.m. Yes. Or, you know, or this guy, he, he, I talked to him about his practice. He was like, I'm up at five every day and I write from five to seven before my family gets up. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. and, and that was one of the most exciting conversations I had because I think what you're talking about is like we just we just want to know how it's done yes <laughs> yes absolutely not even that there's one way to do it or anything like that but it's so um mysterious uh, to everyone involved mm-hmm. and the rewards are so um t- tangible yes Yes. If fleeting, if fleeting, but mm-hmm. tangible mm-hmm. that like we're just like how did you get there how did you get there we need to know like so that yeah when you asked me thoughts about this. I was like, I, I have been thinking about this for a long time. Oh, I, well, I, you've just made an incredible segue into um, my first question for you, um, which is when you think of the phrase, the midnight disease, as it applies to your own creative practice, what comes to mind? I have at times felt like m- my own penchant for creativity was a disease Mm. i can i can relate to that construction of it because it has felt um compulsive i certainly am thinking really specifically of an intimate relationship that i was in where um 
I would often be finishing writing something in the afternoon and then we would go to dinner or be driving and I wouldn't realize it, but I'm still working on the song in my head. Yeah. And the person sitting with me at dinner or sitting in the front seat of my car is like, you are not fucking here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were not happy about it. You know, so, so I, have, <laughs> I have thought about this. It almost reminds me of like... Um, an octopus or something <laughs> can't get off of me. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. it's your friend and other times people are like, what the fuck is on your face? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to be eloquent about it, but like, Oh, wait, I think but, you but, just were, <laughs> but like falling, but falling short in, in this way, because I, I think, I mean, I think this is why it's very interesting. What you're asking people mm. um, is, is because it is, um, there's no one one angle that you can see the whole thing at. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, an origin point for me in wanting to have conversations like this is that I have this vivid memory of being, I don't remember how old I was. I think I was in my teens and sitting on a plane for one of the first times. And I was listening to The Roots. I loved The Roots. And I was just in such a state of of disbelief at the quality of the poetry combined with the crispness and propulsiveness of the music. And it just it felt like this unbelievable magic trick. And I thought, like, maybe if I if I just sit here and transcribe the lyrics, it will somehow be revealed to me how it was generated. Uh, which, of course, was an utter failure. <laughs> um, and then I remember seeing an interview with Black Thought where he was asked, uh, and this may be out-of-date information at this point, but um, he was asked how he he did it, and he was like, it's it's all improvised, it's there when it's happening, and then it's gone. That's a great, that's a great story. I think you probably did get something out of writing, writing mm-hmm. that down. Mm-hmm. It may be hard to put a finger on, and and maybe at the least of it is that you're like, holy shit, this is good, right. you know. And you knew it in a you knew it in a more visceral way than even the magic you described of listening to it, mm-hmm. right? There's some way of like putting it in your body and then out your pen, like you get a, an experience of it, which I think is is actually. Um, I I talk to my students a lot about this in terms of like, just just try it, just try to play somebody else's music try to copy it. You're not going to be able to play it just like Black Thought did. There's going to be a slippage between how you ingest that and how it comes out if you're thinking, you know, as a musician or as a writer. And I think that's how people develop style. You know, I really think that's how like style gets developed. It's like we mm-hmm. absorb um, all of these different things and we absorb them at a time where we're not very good, which mm-hmm. is exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I have become a good guitar player. I've become a good singer. I've become a good writer. But when I was learning my style, I was not. So mm-hmm. I couldn't hear the Dave Matthews track and reproduce it perfectly mm-hmm. as much as I wanted to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah so, that, so that's one thing I, I would say about that. And then the other thing is I'd be really curious um, – especially with a, a creative muscle like improv, right? Um, or anything that, I mean, the same stories have been told about Jay-Z, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or I think we could probably look at any number of instrumentalists who are like in the moment creating something. Um, but it's, uh, it's well, when they were 13, 
did it come like that? Mm-hmm. Probably was harder when you were 13. And you yes. learn what that muscle is and you and you build that muscle so that then when you have reached artistic maturity, which mm-hmm. is not an endpoint, but, you know, just a, a marker, mm-hmm. then then it's available for you. That is very affirming, I just want to say, to, like, be reminded of the humanity of that state that I slash we slash anyone is observing in someone that they admire, that it is, it's the result of, of time spent some, some way. I'm trying to think of my earliest memory of that experience. I, I would talk about as being surprised. Like, what, what, what is uh-huh. my earliest moment of being surprised by making something? Yeah. Right? Because I think that is the most delightful way to describe what creativity is. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, oh, whoa. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, I was maybe four or five years old and I had uh, my best friend at the time was someone I'd met in like, um, you know, like uh, uh, during the summer you send your kid to the library for four hours a day and they play games with them, whatever that was called. Summer Fun Festival is what it was called. Uh-huh. Where I grew okay. up. I just can't believe I remember that. But anyway, my best friend from Summer Fun Festival and I, she came over to my house and I had a little red boombox Um and we decided we were going to be a band called Wildcats. And <laughs> the way that we would make music is we would just press record and start singing. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I remember like I remember some of these songs, first of all, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still friends with this person. And we talk about this all the time. But I remember us just sitting there making shit up yeah. and being like, this is cool. Oh, mm-hmm. Wow. Where did mm-hmm. that go? We didn't plan it. Mm-hmm, we're wildcats. Mm-hmm. We just turned it on and yeah. and sang a thing. And that's probably my earliest memory of like, wow. Do you think that the moment of wow happened when you found yourself singing with her? Or was it when you played back what you had recorded and heard evidence of what you had just done? The reason I'm asking that question is because you're making me think, to go back to the idea of writing down the lyrics on the plane, that Part of what is sort of powerful about that experience is the sense, like you said, that something's passed through your body. Like you grabbed something out of the air and made tangible evidence of it. And even if you don't know where it came from, you can prove that it exists. And there is something really spiritual about that. And it strikes me that that's a similar moment, improvising with your friend, not just to realize well, it's just interesting to me that you emphasize the moment that we pressed record and then we started singing. And it's like the first thought is we should make a record of what we're about to do. I think I have such a strong memory of like the, the sound coming out of my mouth and like being like two or three inches away from this red cassette deck. Like that's the moment, you know. I know that it was also exciting to listen back to it, but there was something in that moment when we were making it up where we were surprising each other in that in that instant that I think I think is the is what is when when I knew something was going on um certainly yeah certainly listening back to it um was ev- was evidence of it but I have kind of never needed the evidence um for me like or the evidence has never been as exciting to me as the okay. moment okay um the thing I like most is the moment where like the puzzle piece 
you figure it out. So I have many memories of I often am standing up writing in my kitchen, like, like uh, waiting for water to boil. And, um, and there'll be a, a, a song that I'm working on. And there will be, um, you know, a, a shaped, a, a square shaped hole that needs to be filled, and I can't find the right square. And then and then I'm just working and working and working. And then that that pops out. And that moment of knowing you have the right thing, the minute it comes out of your mouth, knowing that you have solved the thing that the thing comes into focus, that's the wow moment for me. It's not listening back to it. I'm chasing that experience of being so fully pleased and surprised at the same time. That's fascinating. So if I'm hearing you right, it's like no moment of then, let's say you're writing a song, no moment of then performing that song in front of a crowd or, you know, receiving a Grammy for it or whatever, someone's stereotypical. It's all downhill. It's all downhill after that for me. It It, really, for me, is what, that's the thing that keeps me going, you know, and and mm -hmm. it doesn't, but I can even apply it to other things I do besides writing a song. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been the, all the years that I was on the road and um, being a singer songwriter, there's like endless self-promotion. You know, that was like so yeah. much of so much of what that job was. But when I would come up with like a fun idea for a concert or mm-hmm. when I thought about what to name my um, internet web series or do you know right. any of those moments where like there was an idea it was always the moment of having the idea that was much more exciting to me than actually doing it <laughs> or showing it yeah. or any of that. Um, and it's 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 an, an incredibly private moment mm-hmm. and a and a very like personal moment. And I think that's also what I like about it. Yeah, um, is it's that just for you. It is just for me, mm-hmm. and um, it's something I've been thinking about in, as I move into like this phase of my career that I'm in now, which is like, how much do I want to show people what I'm making? Yeah, because the pandemic was part of this. Like, I mm-hmm. I didn't stop making things in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I actually had the most incredible time <laughs> in the first year <laughs> of the pandemic because I just made and made and made and made and didn't show it to anybody and mm-hmm. just had day after literally day after day of this wow moment. Yeah. Um. In a way that, uh, nothing was interrupting it. Yeah. Um. We talk about this, right? All the things that can interrupt it. What takes you away from the flame? Which is, you know, in the pandemic, I had some government money support. Yeah. <laughs> I live. Uh-huh. I live in a a place. Yeah. I live in a really beautiful, like, open place. So I was not having to social socially distance or mm-hmm. navigate mm-hmm. any things like that. Like my daily life was very minimally impacted mm-hmm. um, at a time when obviously many people were. Um, but I had all these conditions to just all day, every day, just delight myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like hearing you talk about it, it's almost like you've built this long-standing, very successful career as a touring and recording musician to serve your discovery habit. <laughs> like, yeah, you yeah. know, that's a great like, way to put it. Yeah. It's like you, uh, the the. It's almost like that. Like the performing and recording, pays the bills for the moments of inspiration that you then go out and record and perform. That's only become clearer as I've as I've gotten older too, because then the performing and the recording no longer make money um, right. for me. So so what can I do to? I like this. I never thought about this, but like feed my habit, you know, I mean, I'm always going to make stuff and I am always going to be chasing that exciting moment um, for myself. So what can I 
do um, for the very mundane problem of money and sustenance that, um, you know, will still leave me with the right amount of energy and the right amount of time to mess around. Yeah. So can I ask you about then just I heard you say in an interview on I think it was on the the Practice of Practice podcast, you talked about being a piano player from the time you were, I think, three years old, but viewing piano playing as more of an obligation at that time. But then picking up the guitar because your counselor, I think, played it at summer camp. And all of a sudden, the equation behind making music changed. It wasn't practice so that you can be a good student at your lesson. It was play the guitar so you can recapture the feeling of being at camp. Can you talk a little bit more about what you remember of that transition in your relationship to music? Well, I can talk about it. Um, that was what well summarized. Thank you. Um, that and that makes me feel great to know that someone was listening to all of those conversations that I oh, had. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I can talk about it in terms of what's happening for me right now because because okay. because a, a second shift or multiple shift has has happened um, for me, which is that um, I about a year ago I picked up the violin and. Cool. Um, uh, the confluence of events is somewhat interesting and somewhat haphazard, which is that I just for years, I'd had a violin hanging on the wall. Someone in high school, an older person in town, got it, decided he didn't want to use it. He was like, have this. And so it was literally decoration on my wall for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I saved up enough money to get a dog. And I saved up enough money so I wouldn't have to work for six months so I could be home with my puppy to raise him for his first six months of life. This is a this is this is a project I have been waiting to do for years and years and years. And uh -huh. as a touring performing singer songwriter it was just not not gonna happen. So so I finally like changed my life so that I could do this thing I've been wanting to do forever. And it coincided with new neighbors moving in down the street in this little town I live in who are both string players. One is a, a violist, one is a violin player, and they're about my age, and they have a dog that loves to play with my dog. So it just turned out, they were like, well, do you want to learn how to play the violin? And I was like, sure, I've got one. And <laughs> so not quite a year ago, I started playing the violin. And um, the way that the guitar felt to me when I picked it up, is the way the violin feels to me now because the mm. guitar has become an obligation. The guitar has become of less and less interest to me. Mm -hmm. um, this is nothing, no offense, guitar. <laughs> um, there's plenty. It's listening. It can hear you. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty to be discovered. And I, I have discovered a, a fingernail of the whole body of the guitar. You know what I mean? There's much more to be discovered there, but I had really run my course with it. Violin has made me feel like a musician again. Because it is totally new, so different than anything I did before, so difficult. And also just I think something in the nature of the instrument uh, being like a very simple, unamplified, ancient instrument um, has, has made me love playing music again. All I want to do now is play the violin. Now, I'm not very good at it because the violin is really hard. Right. And it's yeah. okay to it's okay for me to be not good at it, which is also really important to me, I think, as a creative person, is that this instrument is bringing me joy and I'm fine with where I'm at with it. I do not have to make it my career 
it is not a lesson that I have to do for my mother. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So in I this do. way, it is it is moved. It's moved into that exciting creative space for me, and I feel really lucky that at my age and my experience as a professional musician, I can still be excited and surprised by an instrument. Yeah. Well, and I hear you again saying that, um, again, it's this idea of how do I return to a state of surprise? How do I return to a state of the unexpected? One of the major ways to be surprised and unexpected is to play an instrument you have no idea what you're doing on. (laughs) Right. I'm I'm 100% serious. Like, I I have songs that I wrote because it was the first time I picked up a, a banjo mandolin or the first time I picked up a ukulele or something because it returns you to that place of, like, you do not know what you're doing. To go back momentarily to this moment of your neighbors inviting you to have lessons in the violin... I just want to make sure I understand, was it that you had been telling yourself, one of these days I'm going to take that violin off the wall and I'm going to learn how to play it? Or was it the violin is hanging on the wall and they say this to you, not even knowing that you have the violin on the wall? And from that moment, this thing from your past enters your present. Yeah, it's the latter. I I was never... Wow. I I never was like, let me... I mean, I didn't even know if it worked. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's just been mm-hmm. hanging on the wall for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, the coolest thing I knew about that violin, and this is totally obscure, but um, I I grew up in a small town in Virginia, and the summer camp I went to um, was like lots of old time contra dance music, as mm. well as Dave Matthews and like yeah. you know <laughs> Pearl Jam and whatever was happening in the '90s. But old time fiddles often have a dried out rattlesnake rattle in them. And it's a really it's it's a yeah, it's sort of a folk of a, a folk mystery as to what exactly it's doing. A couple of things it could be doing. One, it can actually help keep the inside of the violin dry, right? It sort of acts like a like a desiccant. But it also it does make a little rattle. So like you can actually like kind of give a little shake with the fiddle while you're playing it and you can kind of get a sh- a sh- thing while you're playing old time especially if you play it old time style which is kind of down on your forearm instead of up under your chin so my fiddle has a rattlesnake rattle in it and and i knew that when i got it in high school and that was for to me the only thing that was interesting and cool about it <laughs> right. uh, you know what i mean i was like look at this how weird right. and um i have and this so like then when, haunted instrument <laughs> <laughs> totally and it's not even the instrument itself it's like i it's some there's nothing special about it it's like a student grade model from some somebody yeah. 1970 yeah. in pennsylvania or something but that but yeah it had this it had this i had I had this curiosity and a connection to home for me. Um, Mm. This music is a connection to the music that I grew up with. Um, Playing the fiddle again, to me, is like a sort of this like unamplified sort of like unmediated experience of it. And it is changing everything about the rest of my creativity um, by playing this instrument. Really? And I'm noticing all these different ways. Yeah. Yeah. you know, I, I've always played chordal instruments, right? So those are instruments that, that work vertically, essentially. Um, what is happening, uh, like 10 or 15 things at this moment in time. You're not thinking linearly like a, a melody. And obviously I write melodies and sing, but I'm usually thinking about them in relation to what's happening vertically at that time. Um, but the violin is like just floating in the air because it has you're not making chords it doesn't even have frets what is in tune who knows you are really really out there on mm-hmm. like 
a totally just like an no, no net um, of any kind. And I have noticed that it has changed my melody writing. It has changed when I play lead guitar. Those things just feel more fluid to me and more um, flowing are the words I can think of. Um, it's also because I'm primarily learning by reading music, which I've never really had to do before for any of the other things I've done. It's really improved my music reading, which has been great because I'm currently in the middle of writing another musical. And it's musicals are super heavy notation oriented things. Mm-hmm. And, yes. <laughs> um, and so I can feel all of these ways that the violin has um, changed all of these other things I'm doing. Hmm. Um, can you tell that I'm loving it right now? I mean, like, it's literally all I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty more to come with Aaron McKeown, right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. You also mentioned the way you think about lyrics as they address stacked chords uh, in your songwriting practice prior to learning how to play the violin. Um, And something fascinating to me about that that is related to another thing that you said in that um, practice of practice interview, which is that that conversation was literally about practice, like rehearsing. How do you, um, you know, keep your uh, instrument literal or figurative in tune? Um, and one of the things you said is that for a long time, when you were on your own, quote unquote, practicing, you were more often writing than you were actually playing your instrument. I got the sense from the way that you were talking about it that because you said you also uh, would write poems and um, stories and stuff when you were uh, a kid. Where does the practice of literal like writing words rather than songwriting? Is that still at the root of your tree, or has that evolved and changed? How do you how do you think about that component of your work now? I think it's still the root. I mean, mm-hmm. that was my first, you know, wildcats aside, um, <laughs> right. writing writing poems, and um, there was a, a yearly. Um, contest uh in in my school system for young authors and um like a kind of a like make a book and Mm -hmm, not only did mm -hmm. you write the book but you made the book you know Mm. and um and i enjoyed that as much as anything else was like like actually like drawing everything stitching it together what however it was all going to look um but that's that was my earliest like creative work uh consistently was every year i was like excited to like sometimes I wrote stories sometimes I did the poems I did that for years and years and years probably until late middle school maybe um and and it never I never thought I'd be a musician I mean I never it wasn't really until until I started playing guitar that I that I had that experience and then and then the natural fit of all these things I was writing already with the guitar made songwriting like be the next thing but um I have always thought of myself just primarily as a writer. Um, I know, like, 
I am a musician and that's kind of this magic trick that not everybody can do. Um, but I have always thought of myself as a writer. And again, like as I'm moving into this next phase of my life, I'm trying to find other places where I can do that because I just enjoy it so much. And um, so that's that's the, the root of it for me. And, you know, the, the practice, it's interesting. There's things that I do that are practice, that are different. I mean, certainly when I sit down with my violin, I, I am getting a metronome out. I am actually doing exercises. Um, but I I have a number of other things that I do that I think count as practice in that way that we're talking about of like craft so that you're ready. And one of them is I've been in a weekly songwriting group for almost a decade. And I dip in and out of it and do different periods of time where I'll do every week of it. But basically, there's a group of about 20 of us. And we get a prompt from our leader, who's a great musician named Matt, the electrician. And you basically have a week to write a song with that prompt. And then you get to hear everybody else's song. So, you know, Friday night before midnight, your inbox fills up with all these mp3s from people and we've all written about the same prompt and so i'll do 10 11 12 weeks in a row and i'll maybe do that twice a year probably and um those are the songs where i'm standing waiting for the water to boil and something happens and it's so satisfying you know because because it's thursday afternoon that's when i usually do it i usually give myself an hour like these are the things of practice for me it's like same time give yourself a time limit you have a prompt like all of a sudden you've got a song and you know I've said often before but like I don't believe songs are precious and I say that as a provocation uh you can replace songs with anything your essay isn't precious your PhD isn't precious <laughs> that's a hard one but like <laughs> you, do you know what I mean but like but the idea that like you will make a lot of songs and you will accumulate a lot of songs and some will be better than others but none of them are precious and that really works for me in terms of like preparing, practicing, keeping the machine oiled, staying ready without being exhausted by the whole thing. Because I think there's a way that being an artist, being tortured, tortured by the muse or whatever that is, just seems exhausting. And I am all about finding ways to not be exhausted. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if we go back to this idea of you chasing ways to surprise and delight yourself, um, sitting in a place of torture returning to a song over and over again that you have developed a torturous relationship with, you can drive all night long, but you can't get there from here. <laughs> you know. Um, let me go back momentarily, though, to this Thursday afternoon moment that you're describing, because I just want to make sure I understand it. You're saying that Thursday afternoon moment where you give yourself an hour is you sit down and you say to yourself, okay, for this next hour, I'm going to try to generate a song. Not I'm going to try. I am. I am. And okay. it's going to be finished at the end of this hour, and I'm going to send it in. I'm not going to work on it past this hour. I'm not going to go back to it tomorrow. Like, Got it. wherever it is at the end of this, even if that mm -hmm. means nothing for the first 50 minutes, <laughs> uh -huh. then 10 minutes of bullshit Yeah, <laughs> like, to send it in. Like, that's that's what that is for me. Yeah. So this reminds me of, you said something in another interview once, and this was a long time ago, uh, so I'm curious to know if you still feel this way, but you said basically um, that when you're a young artist, you're prolific, and all you want to do is write, write, write. You just want to constantly be generating new songs. But then you were also saying 
that this was, I think, when you were, um, it was the 10-year anniversary of Distillation Tour. Um, and so you were returning to these songs that you had written at a very different period in your life. Um, and one of the things you said that you felt listening back to it is, I can't believe I was that unhappy. Um, and that it had been this process for you in revisiting the songs to realize that some of them you weren't even playing anymore. And the ones that you were still playing had changed so much over the years of doing them live for people and playing them in other arrangements with other musicians and things like that. And it made me want to ask you, I think there are many musicians who view a song as a discrete thing, that they create it and then the song exists and it has its own life. And then there are other musicians who their songs are an extension of them. And um, they emerge organically from that same tree that, you know, for you, the writing is at the root of. And I felt a curiosity, I guess, about which of those you would describe yourself as or if you would even accept that as the dichotomy. Because I had this thought that maybe the songs that stay with you are the ones that are more connected to the tree. And so, like as your tree grows and you change, those songs are going to change. And then there are other songs that maybe you wrote at a time and your ecosystem, your internal ecosystem has, you know, rinsed those feelings out to a degree and all of a sudden the song feels like this thing that's separate from you. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I, I viscerally can remember how awful it felt to play some of those songs from <laughs> a record I made in 2001 to play uh -huh. them in 2011. I can remember mm -hmm. how bad it felt to get mm -hmm. back in in those feelings. And I think I was thinking about this before we before we got on because of the, the quote that you told me is sort of the guiding quote of yeah. this mm -hmm. situation. But um, I stopped drinking and doing drugs in 2008. And um, so I, I don't do any drugs. I don't drink. I don't do. I don't do any of that anymore. And um, distillation, that first album, is is whiskey soaked. I was drunk a lot of the time. I I made it. I was drunk a lot of the time. The things that it describes are happening. Um, there's a lot of language on that that is about drinking. Um, I'm not putting a value judgment on that in any way. Like, that's just what was happening in my life at that time. Um, and to then go look at that material as someone who doesn't do that anymore, that was part of what felt so um, hard to connect to it. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to, to say that, but I also want to say that, like, in terms of we're talking about this flame and how you stay close to it and how you nurture it, like, for me... I learned that drugs and alcohol kept me away from that flame. They got in between me and that um, wow moment. They um, made me too tired to chase it. They made me too depressed to be surprised. They, they took the joy out of all of that. They made the room I was living in very small. And um, having, having moved on from that in my life, um, I think there's an uh, an un unfortunate like um, emphasis placed on, on being prolific, but I will have to say that I have more access to that surprise feeling. I have more access to that wow experience, and I am way more ready for it whenever it comes um, than I was 
pre-2008. And the result of that for me has been a lot more music, right? And a lot more different kinds of music and a lot more delight in all these different kinds of ways. Um, I'll just say one other thing where you're sort of characterizing what a song is to people. I have always thought of a song as a recipe. I've always thought of it as like a list of instructions. You know what I mean? And so you can you can double that, you can half it, you can swap out the egg for like shoot what do people substitute eggs for i can't remember um <laughs> I, there's some I vegan substitute there's some vegan substitute for eggs that i can't think yeah, of yeah. right now mm-hmm, um anyway mm-hmm. but like you know so, so it's just a list of instructions like this is a basic idea you want to get across it's got this many choruses but if you don't want to sing them all who cares you mm-hmm. know what i mean it's like basically these are the chords but you could change the rhythms like that that's how i think about songs so you know, if a song hasn't dropped off for any of those other reasons that we're talking about, I might carry it with me with this idea of that it's a recipe. And it might mm-hmm. still be a recipe that's relevant to me because I want to make this cake in 2023 that's different than when I wrote yeah. it in 1998. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and it strikes me that you're describing what the removal of substances from your life enables in your writing practice as it's like you it's this idea of rinsing again it's like you're you're clearing up the channel there's more of a direct relationship between you and whatever inspiration is is trying to be expressed in your work and it's sort of a perfect metaphor for the way you've been talking about the violin is that it's totally unmediated by other by even fixed tones (laughs) (laughs) even have frets <laughs> do you know yeah. what i mean like it is yeah. truly unmediated with no no anchor anywhere except right. an open string you have an open string that that yeah. is a tone that you can rely on nothing else you can yeah. rely on and except this mysterious courage. rattlesnake poison inside of it correct <laughs> correct and your somehow... ability to to put your hand in the same micromillimeter place over and over again you know right. while you're also trying to walk and chew gum with which is what the bow is which is a whole crazy right. other other thing of it but um i will have to say i mean i also have questions about this you know mm. there there are moments where um i still would rather work something out in a way I don't understand via creativity mm-hmm. than go to a therapist. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. might not be the right choice for me to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean in terms of health and sustainability and like and like uh, you know mental health. But but there is a way that um, this working through things that we don't quite understand the way creativity allows us to is is sometimes. I, I sometimes I want to do that, you know, and 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 um, you know, I think in in my new current version of life, it's it's a question of trying to find a, a balance between how to how do I take care of myself in these um, very articulate uh, uh, medical ways <laughs> to be without a can't think of a better word, um, and these other ways that are sort of like a folk medicine of. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote a whole musical this fall. And in order to do that, I didn't do much else, right? So I didn't like hang out with friends. I didn't play tennis, which is my favorite thing to do. I didn't do all of these things. I just was putting in seven to eight hours a day using all the craft that I know how to use um, day after day after day for a couple of months. And I was so happy. Most days something 
like surprised and delighted me. A hard day was worse than any day you could imagine, but a good day was so good. And then I was just in this cave for, for a bunch of months. And like, now I'm out of the cave. Now I have to deal with like boring regular life, you know, and I, and I miss that magic. Not to overmake the metaphor, but I'm very hung up, as you can tell, on this uh, rattlesnake rattle secret of the violin. But I don't know. It does seem sort of like if we're thinking about substances or whatever unhealthy behaviors are mitigating someone's ability to um, tend the flame. You know, rattlesnakes are poisonous, right? Um, And it makes me think there is this this poison inside of all of us that needs to be addressed for artists by making things. Why would you add more poison to the system? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, right. Um, before we wrap up, let me get my fiddle for you. Okay, sounds good. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to play for you. I'll have to figure out something to play for you. But anyway, um, here, just listen to this. There it is. There it is. Yeah. I don't think you'll be able to see it here, but it's it's pretty big. It's like uh, maybe like four inches long. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And it's survived all this time. I mean, it's ancient, but it hasn't broken apart or anything. All right. Let me think, like, I've never really done this before. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of, like... It'll be a... All right, I think I know what I'm going to do. Um, okay. There's a, there's a song, um, it's an a old-time fiddle tune called Johnny Don't Get Drunk. <laughs> <laughs> fitting, fitting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, here we go. Yes. <laughs> there it is. Johnny, don't get drunk. Don't do it, so, Johnny. Tend to flame instead. <laughs> yeah, there's another one called Johnny Cope, which is really funny. Ooh, that's um, after Johnny's been to therapy. <laughs> but apparently, no, it's actually like apparently those two tunes go together. Because I, mm. I was at a session the other night and I was like, well, I know Johnny, don't get drunk. And someone's mm. like, oh, that's great. I know Johnny Cope. And then we put the two of them together, which is pretty funny. So, Wow. Wow. Um. Well, Aaron, this has just been a, a total delight to talk to you, and same, I thank you same, 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 so much for for taking the time. Um, I would be remiss if you have like two more seconds, um, of course, yeah. If I didn't tell you um, just how how meaningful, um, I think I I think I put this in the email I sent you, but that the lyric um, "Every day, give me the strength of a thousand beams. Uh, every day, carry me and lift me and hold me." Um, has just, ever since I heard it, been a source of such light, I want to say. And so I want to thank you for it. And I don't know if that's one of the songs that you still feel... I'm hesitating as I'm saying it because we were just talking about how some songs... No, you're going to love... When I tell you where it came from and what it's about, you're going to love it. Okay. okay. But I really I really appreciate that. It's really um 
I don't ever take it for granted that people are listening. Um, you know, and that um, it it's like a, you know, I it it can be frustrating um, at at this point in my career where I've had lots of success and also had lots of not success and have had to make a change. You know, it's not it's not really my choice to like stop being a touring artist. Um, it's more motivated by just things out of my control. So if it was up to me, like. I would still be, I mean, of course I love to do all these other things, but I love performing and I love touring and I just can't do it anymore. And, you know, my heart is like broken by that. Um, so to know that the efforts that I put into it for so many years are um, being received is really, that really means a lot to me. So it really, I really appreciate you telling me that. And um, that particular line is also important to me too. So that song is called Manifestra. Right. And um, it's the first song I wrote after I stopped drinking and using drugs. And I didn't write a thing for two years. So I stopped using everything in 2008. And I just didn't write, couldn't write, like just I I tried to stay patient about it. Other people who'd done the same, gone through the same thing were just like, just stay patient. Don't worry about it. You know, it'll come when it comes. Because of this really tight relationship we talk about between like the muse and alcohol, for example. So what happens if I take away this thing? Am I going to be a creative person anymore? So for two years, it was dry. And, um, and then uh, I played a show at a little gig out, out here in the Berkshires, and you stay overnight um, afterwards upstairs, and I dreamt that song in completion. And I woke up that morning about four or five in the morning with that song with me, and I went down to the parlor room that where, where we had played the gig the night before, and I just sat down and wrote it out. And there's maybe of the hundreds of songs I've written in my life, maybe four or five of them have, have come like that, have come fully formed in a dream. And there's, there's no way to predict that or do anything. It's just a gift. And, and that song was a complete gift and so special to me. Um, and remains so special for me. Like for me, it's um, obviously because it's marking this important change that I made in my life. It's marking a moment of return to um, to the flame when I wasn't sure if it would come back. It remains like a really special like incantation for me, and especially that line for myself as well. And and I don't again I because it came to me in this dream, I don't, I don't really feel like I have credit for it. I just really do feel like in, in, in the most non woo woo play way possible. I'm not a woo woo person, but like mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. just came and I just wrote it down and it's a very, very special song for me. You're right. That makes me love it even more. <laughs> um, I thought, yeah. What if, what if I was like, uh, fuck that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, that has happened on this show before. So, okay. <laughs> um, but, um, I I guess just to reflect back to you, I wish for it to continue to animate you as you navigate this new time in your career. Um, and without being too cheesy, I know you. Uh, something else I was sort of struck by um, in looking through your interviews and remembering the music of yours that matters to me that you have that song Astra, I think, from one of your first records. Aspera, Aspera yep. A Aspera, I'm sorry. Um, which is like uh, t charting a, a difficult path t leads you to the stars, you know? And then you wrote elsewhere in Manifestra, I don't want to mangle it. 
Um, you said, in the process of knowing what you know, you dismantle the rot and the ruin of a straight line. Um, oh, yeah. So here's, yeah. To, here's to whatever the zag brings. Yes, that's right. Let's... I. I should go back and I should go back and look at that song. I mean, that's that's one of those things where truly it's like, who wrote that? You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm like, oh, that's a good lyric. And I'm not saying that because I think I wrote it. You know what I mean? Because it just came, it just came from somewhere. Um, and it's nice when you get one of those every once yeah. in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. 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 So. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So. Wild Card Wednesday. Now, on Wildcard Wednesday last week, I played you a clip of Orioles fans vocally expressing their support for Kevin Brown, the television broadcaster who dared to speak the truth about the team's record last season on a broadcast and was suspended by Orioles ownership for that quote-unquote transgression. Now, Kevin Brown has thankfully returned to the broadcast airwaves uh, for the last few Orioles games, and there was some worry, at least on my part, that he might be somewhat chastened in his style, that he might not broadcast with his trademark spirit and elan, owing to maybe a, a lingering sense of fear at retribution. But that could not be further from what has happened as evidenced by this glorious moment from last night's broadcast when, in the midst of a blowout, uh, the Orioles were losing 10-3, to Kevin decided to do his impression of the lead singer of Blink-182. Tom has this, like, very distinct nasally voice, you know? So he goes, where are you? And I'm so sorry. Now I recognize you. It. Do. You do, yeah, you got you it now. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Aaron McKeown for joining me on the show today. Subscribe to Aaron's podcast, subscribe to their Substack, and listen to their music. Links to all of it are in the show notes. 
Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. And if you would like to email me about anything you have heard on The Midnight Disease, you can do that. The address is midnight at walt.fm. We will be back next week with another great conversation. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you then. And in the meantime, keep driving.